Well, thank you very much for that uh, warm welcome, and uh, you'll pardon me while I try to adjust the fact that this was not made for me. Now it's teetering on the edge of disaster, uh, but that's uh, why we trust the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Um, thank you so much for having uh, our team here. You might have heard Alicia Wood and Michelle Tepper and other folks uh, speaking. Uh, hey, guys. <laughs> How's it going? Um, and I'm sure you've been blessed by them and Vince Vitale and Joe Vitale as well. We've just been had such a great time since we're here. But you know, I was thinking about something while I was watching uh, KB perform. How, how awesome was that? Um, and he came off the stage, and you all were cheering, one more song, one more song. And I commented to one of my colleagues, you know what I've never heard? One more sermon, one more sermon. I've never heard that before, but uh, maybe today's a, a, a difference. I don't know. It probably won't be. But it's a pleasure to be with you, but I want to talk to you about something of crucial importance. And I realize we're going to have to put a little bit of our thinking caps on now in the midst before we actually find some of the, uh, the wonderful ministry we're going to have with Hillsong and King and Country and all these things. But in the meantime, I want to bring to you what I hope is an important message, especially for our time, given what we're going through, I think, as a nation and as a culture in general. And it's this culture of confusion and this idea that truth is no longer as important in our lives as it once was. And as I talk about this, I'm reminded of something that happened to me not too long ago. I travel a lot for speaking. I travel all over the world, as does the rest of our team. And sometimes when I travel internationally, because I'm from Michigan, I get to drive if it's in Canada. So in this particular speaking engagement, I was going over to Canada, and it was an outdoor festival, not nearly as big as this, but much in the same energy level. And when I was going there, I had to cross over a part of the river, the Detroit River, into Canada. But in this particular part of the river, there was no bridge and there was no tunnel. So I had to cross over by going on a car ferry. Now, I'm from the Great Lakes state. And when you think of Great Lakes and you think of car ferries, you think of these, these, these big boats that hold like 20, 30, and 40 cars. This was not one of those. This thing barely held two cars. It was this white, rickety, paint peeling off of it kind of a thing. I drove up on the thing, and the guy said, you're my only passenger. Don't worry about it. Stay in your car. I half expected this car ferry to go across this short river like Lord of the Rings style, you know, where he's going to pull it across with a rope or something. So I got into this car ferry, and he said, stay in your car. But now I'm terrified of getting lost because I'm horrible with directions. I can get lost in my own backyard. So I'm constantly looking at my GPS. I'm in my car to make sure I'm going to the right place. So as he's told me to stay in the car, I looked down at my GPS to make sure that my destination was the right destination to go to. It was at that very moment when I looked down at the GPS, that's when the boat left the dock. So I didn't see the, the boat leave the dock. But because I was in my car, the suspension of the car and the sheer mass of the car prevented me from feeling us leave the dock. So did you understand what happened? I couldn't see it and I couldn't feel it. So when I looked up, from the, from the GPS, I had that slight feeling, that slight vertigo, but that sudden panic you might get where you're sitting at an intersection and there's a bus next to you and, you're, and the bus goes forward and you're not quite sure if the bus is going forward or you're moving backward. And you have that moment of panic. You don't know what to do because you might kill somebody. What do you do in that particular moment? In that particular moment, you look to something that's not moving. You look to a fixed point of reference. You look for a mailbox. You look for a street light. You look for a building. Something that tells you whether you are moving or not. Well, I was on a river. Everything is moving. By definition, things are flowing. 
So if I was moving, the boat couldn't help me because I was on the boat. And the river couldn't help me because the river's constantly moving. So the nausea and the panic lasted for quite some time. It wasn't until I looked to the distant shore and I saw that, in fact, I was moving because it became bigger and bigger in my field of vision. I think our culture is in the river today. That's what's going on with culture. It's not a culture of fixed positions. Everything is floating. Everything becomes relative to everything else in terms of our desires, in terms of what we want and what we actually cling to. We seem to have lost any sense of value for dry land and for foundations because we've left them. We've gone on now. We've left those things so far behind that we have our sea legs. And in fact, I would even venture to say, not only have we forgotten what it feels like to be on dry land, we actually resent what it feels like to be on dry land. We are in a culture of confusion where everything's awash. I want you to think now about the questions we're having to answer, the questions we're actually asking ourselves, things that were once solid and didn't move and were foundational. We're now up for grabs. Everything is floating after all, and so all of it's up for grabs. Questions like, what does it mean to be male or female? What does it mean to be human? There's this whole movement now where we want to actually append things to ourselves, like computer chips and other things to download our memories and all these things. Look up the movement. It's called transhumanism. Where we're actually changing what it means to be human. These things we used to actually take for granted, and we don't anymore. What does marriage actually mean? What does it mean to have an interaction of faith and science? And what does it mean to have human dignity? All of these things are now up for grabs, and it's caused an increased anxiety. The young people who are here, I think you know what I'm talking about. When you look in and you see at your culture, and you see a culture that I think as the youth are actually as anxious as they've ever been, there's a certain run of hopelessness that's happening because they no longer find any fixed positions. It reminded me of something that happened when I was an, uh, a child of the 80s, by the way, which is probably pretty obvious. A lot of you aren't, but I was, and some of you out there are, children of the 80s. There was this phenomenon called um, Cold War neurosis, where children would wake up in the middle of the night and they'd be screaming, having nightmares, that the United States and the USSR had finally done it. The Soviet Union and the US had finally made the Cold War nuclear hot. And people were screaming in the middle of the night, kids, because they were worried about the end of the world. And in the midst of all that uncertainty and all that flow and all that uh, instability, there was a song that was written by the band Genesis. It was called Land of Confusion. And the lyrics went something like this. Oh, Superman, where are you now? When everything's gone wrong somehow, these men of steel, these men of power are losing control by the hour. The question is this. That song was written 30 years ago. That song could be written again today. Because amidst all the chaos and all the confusion of all the cultural shifts and all the things where they're saying, don't believe in God or whatever, or make God yourself or whatever it might be, these men of steel and these women of steel, these men of power, women of power, they're losing control by the hour because we no longer have fixed points of reference. We're no longer clear on anything. We've sacrificed clarity. We like being in this river. We like being in the river. And so we've sacrificed clarity and certainty on the altar of our human autonomy. We seem to like confusion. That's what I call the culture of confusion. We're currently immersed in a culture that values confusion as a virtue and clarity is decried as a sin. Confusion is a virtue and clarity is a sin. Let me explain that. 
What I mean by that is this. If you think about it, if you're confused sexually, you're a hero. If you're confused morally, you're progressive. If you're confused religiously, you know, all paths lead to God, well, then you're tolerant. But if you're clear on sexual amores and sexual boundaries, well, then you're a bigot. If you're clear on moral boundaries or that there are certain objective moral standards, well, that's regressive. And if you're clear that there's only one way to God, especially if you're a Christian, well, that's considered intolerant. So clarity is considered a sin, but confusion is a virtue. Because if we embrace confusion, well, then there are no bright lines anymore, are there? There are no more boundaries. We can play at the edges, and we no longer have to conform our lives to a set of truths. We can just simply say truth isn't as important. As if to prove my point, in 2016, Oxford English Dictionaries named its word of the year at the end of the year, and the word of the year was post-truth. Every year, Oxford English Dictionaries names a word of the year. It's a word that sort of captures the imagination and the fascinations of the culture for that previous year. And in 2016, at the end of the election cycle especially, they named post-truth as the word of the year because that word was used 2,000 more times in 2016 than it was when it was first coined in 1992. We have become a post-truth culture. And what does it mean to be a post-truth culture? It simply means this that we elevate feelings and preferences above facts and truth. A post-truth culture elevates feelings and preferences above facts and truth. Now, you might be tempted to think that that's a postmodern culture. That's not postmodernism. Postmodernism is dying its death. If you might recall this, and a lot of times we see this in our churches, we're trying to respond to the postmodern movement. That's over now, to large respect, because a postmodernist would say this, there is no such thing as objective truth. But you can argue with someone like that, because if they say there's no such thing as objective truth, you know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. If you try to foist your truth on me, well, that's a power move, and it's a, a, an imposition on me and on my autonomy. Back then, when someone said there is no such thing as objective truth, you could simply respond by saying, is that statement objectively true? And they'll see instantly that it's self-defeating. To say there is no truth is itself a statement about truth. And if you, what you said is true, then what you said is actually false. It's self-defeating. You can argue with a postmodern, but a post-truth person is different than that. Where a postmodern person says there is no such thing as truth, a post-truth person says there is such a thing as truth, but I don't care. And the question becomes this. How do you actually offer truth to a culture that values confusion, that elevates its preferences over the truth. That's what post-truth means, elevating preferences over truth. See, what happened here? Why did we get there? How did we arrive at such a place? The reality is this, we talk about things like the word freedom, for example, and we were listening to a wonderful song that talked about, I'm so free, I got no chains. That freedom we talk about there's actually two sides to that freedom. It's not just freedom from restraint. That's not what freedom actually is. That's part of freedom. But true freedom isn't just freedom from restraint. It's freedom to do the very best, freedom for excellence. But our culture in the West, we've become obsessed with freedom. We've actually idolized freedom as if it was a god itself, something to attain. And so we no longer talk about freedom. We use that word, but we're not talking about freedom anymore. We are talking about autonomy. That's a fancy sounding word, but basically means we think it means freedom. It doesn't mean freedom. 
The word autonomy actually comes from two Greek root words. The word autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. So when you are autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. Now that might sound liberating, but it's actually enslaving when you think about it. Because if a post-truth culture elevates preferences and feelings over facts and truth, and I'm truly autonomous, a law unto myself, what happens then when I meet someone else and they have preferences and they're autonomous, a law unto themselves, but I have preferences and those preferences conflict? In other words, they come against the other person's preferences. If truth is no longer the thing that decides between us, what will decide between us when our preferences conflict? It won't be truth. It'll be power and the loudest microphone. And when that happens, there's going to be chaos because the lawlessness will break out. That's not what's going to happen. We're seeing it in our day now. We're seeing that happening now on university campuses. We're no longer talking, uh, we're no longer talking about various opinions and allowing truth to come, out, come and win. Now we have to shout people down or physically threaten them to keep them quiet because we are now post-truth people who have sacrificed clarity on the altar of our autonomy. We want to be laws unto ourselves. We don't want to be free. We want to be a law unto ourselves. So the question becomes, how do we actually offer truth in a positive way, in a spiritually uplifting way to a truth that values confusion more than it values, um, to a culture that values tr confusion more than it values truth? Let me give you a couple of things about how to do this. I think there are two ways. The first fundamental way is to point out the consequences of what a post-truth culture actually is. If you point out the consequences, then you can actually show them the hope that comes from embracing truth. What are the consequences? The first consequence that happens when we sacrifice clarity and truth on the altar of our autonomy is we lose our ability to reason. We lose all sense of reason, which is ironic because we're so supposedly in the age of reason. A while back, I was telling my story uh, to a large group at a, at a men's breakfast. And my story is that I came from Islam and I became a Christian after a long, arduous search into the evidence for both worldviews. And as I talked, there was a guy sitting in the front row. And he was taking very, very fast notes, even like sort of furious notes, like smoke coming from the page kind of notes. And I thought, someone would be a distinguisher. This guy's going to burst into flame. And now normally this is the guy who comes and talks to you, one of the first people to talk to you after you get done talking and you put your, your, put your notes down and your microphone down. And sure enough, he was one of the people who talked to me pretty much straight away. He walked up to me and he said, hey, I appreciate the way you didn't disagree with your former worldview of Islam. I said, well, you didn't get the point exactly. And the reason why he said that is because when I talk about why I became a Christian, I didn't leave Islam to become a Christian because Islam was false. I left it and became a Christian because the gospel is true. And there were great reasons to believe that the gospel is true. But he said, look, you don't disagree with anybody. I said, well, hold on. I think, I think you got, missed the point. He said, can I show you something? And I said, okay. And when you're a public speaker and someone says, hey, can I show you something? It's going to be a long conversation. And what he showed me was a diagram. And in the diagram, he drew this big capital T right in the middle of the page. And he said, this represents the total objective truth because there is truth. And I said, okay, so far you and I agree. And then he, said, then he showed me the, the lowercase t's in a circle around the big capital T. He said, the lowercase t's represent everyone else's worldview. We all have incomplete versions of the truth. And eventually, we'll all become enlightened and have the full truth. We don't have it now. 
I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah. I said, you're telling me we all have versions of the truth? He said, that's right. I said, really, like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Idi Amin? I could go on. These people all had versions of the truth? This is exactly what he said to me, exactly what he said to me. He said, I can't tell you that I prefer their versions of the truth because I don't, but I also can't tell you that I disagree with them because I can't. I said, buddy, if you can disagree with anybody and not be you know, worrying about offending anybody, it's Hitler. It's okay, it's safe. But he said, my worldview is that we all have incomplete versions of the truth, so I, can't, I don't dare disagree with anybody. So I asked him a follow-up question. I said, are you telling me you can't disagree with anybody? He said, that's right. I said, sure you can. He said, no, I can't. I said, you just did it. Now, I set him up a little bit. That's 15 years of being a trial lawyer at work there. But here's my point. He elevated his preference. It's very post-truth. He elevated his preference that people all just have equally valid worldviews, and we don't do the hard work of actually examining whether their worldviews are true. We just accept it and move along and not actually respect someone enough to say, I want to know where you and I differ. He wanted to, his preference was to get rid of all that because his feelings were more important. An otherwise very intelligent man. I remember when I walked out of the venue, there he was by his car, and he was saying, if I can't disagree with anybody, but I disagree with him, and he was doing that kind of a thing. An otherwise very smart man had sacrificed reason on the altar of his preferences. That's the first casualty. Now, this, by the way, does not only extend to personal interaction. It has very serious societal problems. And you might recall this in 2015 at the University of Missouri, the football team had um, uh, uh, arranged a protest to protest against some racial disparities and some racial injustices on the campus. And it was a very large thing, and it was actually meant to garner lots of public attention. That's what protests do. They're supposed to garner attention. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of guys sitting around a room complaining. And so it drew press attention, including ESPN, because the football team had started it. ESPN brought a photographer to the campus, and he was, he, he was taking pictures. He happened to have crossed over into a safe space, a place where you can't have photographers, even though it was public. And as he was snapping pictures, a woman jumps in front of him and begins to like, try to block his view and calls him an oppressor and an aggressor. And she starts saying things like, I need some muscle over here. Who's going to help me remove this guy? It was a professor at the university trying to forcibly remove a reporter from a public protest. Do you know what she teaches for a living? Communications at the journalism department. Because her preferences mattered more than the truth. And she lost all sense of reason, at least in that moment. And it has very serious ramifications. But the second thing that happens we lose our sense of reason. Second thing that happens is we lose our sense of integrity. We begin to lie. See, the post-truth culture elevates preferences over truth. And what ends up happening is if I think I have an agenda that's more important than this particular fact that I find inconvenient, I'll either lie about it or I'll just ignore it altogether. We see this in every facet of life, including in the sciences. There was a study that was published by, um, that was made known by Smithsonian Magazine where someone actually tried to reduplicate all the studies that were done in scientific journals, and they found out they could only duplicate the findings of 40% of the findings that were reported as fact. In other words, less than half should have confidence that they actually are the facts they say they are. 
Now, my point isn't to bash science. Science is a wonderful thing. Science uh, brings you these wonderfully huge screens that you're able to see me on, and the speakers you're, you're able to see these wonderful artists on. Science is a wonderful thing in many ways, but my point is this. No one is immune from a post-truth culture. Just because you don a lab, a lab coat and put on a white coat does not mean you no longer need to obey the truth. So we lose our sense of integrity. And by the way, Christians do this as well. We sometimes click like, share, or whatever it might be when we see some article that makes the enemies of Christianity, whoever those people happen to be at the time, uh, look as bad as possible. We don't bother reading the whole article. We just assume that this must be true because someone other Christian told us it was true. If you're a follower of the way, the truth, and the life, you are called to a higher standard. You are called to actually verify it before you click share or like or whatever it might be. We lose our sense of integrity. But the third thing that happens, and this is probably the most dire, is that when we sacrifice clarity on the altar of our autonomy, when we want to be laws unto ourselves, the worst, perhaps the worst casualty of that is that we lose our sense of accountability and human value. We lose accountability and human value. Think about that. If we are laws unto ourselves, if we're fully autonomous, then who are we beholden to? There's no God above us to tell us what's right and what's wrong. There's no authority to, for us to have to have obligations to. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want, in whatever way we want. That's what freedom is, after all. It's not really. It's just the autonomy. But then we're not accountable to anybody. It was Protagoras, a Greek philosopher from years ago, centuries ago, who said, man is the measure of all things. We have no gods to be beholden to. So we are the measure of all things. We've been saying that ever since. It was Tom Flynn, a secular humanist writer, who made an interesting statement. Bear with me for a moment. This is what he says. Secular humanism maintains, he's an atheist, that through a process of value inquiry informed by scientific and reflective thought, men and women can reach rough agreement concerning values. And he goes on. But did you hear what he said? He said, if we just have scientific and reflective thought, we can reach rough agreement concerning values. In other words, man is the measure of all things. Here's the problem. When you look around, ask yourself, how much agreement have we actually come to? When you look around the world, you see religious disparity, you see scientific disparity, you see people who are persecuted for having no faith or having the wrong faith, whatever it might be. You see sexism, you see racism. We are horrible at this. We are categorically, as human beings in, the, in our race, we are terrible at coming to this agreement because we are inherently sinful. And there's something wrong with us. That's what Jesus says, and he says that so beautifully because he doesn't tell you what you want to hear. He tells you what you need to hear. And what you need to hear is not that you or I are the saviors of the world because we're so wonderful. What he tells you is that you are made in God's image and that he is the one who redeems you. You need someone who's not you and I need someone who's not me to save me from me. But the world tells me we can read rough agreement concerning values. But then you look at the protests all across the world and all across the campuses and you see that if there are certain voices we don't like, we actually violently protest them. This happened at Middlebury College when Richard uh, uh, Murray, who is no re uh, relation, by the way, um, uh, Charles Murray, I'm sorry, and Allison Stenger were both attacked on the university campus because they had contrary opinions that weren't popular. 
And then we see it all over the place where there, it's at certain campuses where cars are set on fire and windows are smashed in, whatever it might be. And you look around the world and you say, Tom Flynn, this atheist, says that through uh, value inquiry and searching our own minds and hearts, we can reach rough agreement concerning values. Let me suggest this. The only value we've agreed on is the value to be rough. We no longer have that sense of human value anymore because we've inverted the laws. We have no one to be accountable to. And so human beings don't have value anymore. That's why Peter Singer and Alberta Jubilini and Francesca Minerva, uh, th all three of which are medical ethicists or, 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 or philosophical ethicists, can argue with a straight face. These are from some of the finest minds in the world. Can argue with a straight face that human beings, men and women, moms and dads, can kill their newborn babies, not preborn, newborn babies, up to a certain amount. Why? Because the baby doesn't have any value, because the baby doesn't have the cognitive abilities, the brain power, to value itself. And if the parents don't give it value, well, then it has no value. Do you see the problem? When autonomy, when us becoming the masters of the universe is the most important thing, people start to lose their sense of value. Now, this might all sound very doom and gloom. I realize that. But I do have hope. I really do. If for no other reason that, 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 that festivals like this, where people come to worship God in this massive amount of numbers, shows me that there's people who actually still want to hold on to truth. But I'll tell you this as well. We've gone to universities all over the world. I've spoken at some of the, uh, like Yale and, and other places, um, and Ravi has spoken there, and our team has spoken at Berkeley and these wonderful places, and thousands show up. 10,000, 7,000, 6,000, 3,000, they show up, and the skeptics line up at the microphones to ask questions, and each one of them is not asking a zinger. They're not trying to get us. They actually want an answer. So I think that the younger generation actually is there, not because they don't care about truth. I think they're waking up, seeing that the post-truth culture is a grisly thing. It's not good. It's not resulting in happiness. It's resulting in loneliness and despair. And they're coming to the open forums because they want answers. Is there a source for those answers? In the time remaining, I want to tell you that the answer is most definitely yes. Most definitely yes. And I think it's found not only in the pages of Scripture, but in the figure about whom the Scriptures were written, in the person of Christ himself. Let me suggest this to you. The culture rejects the Bible as an authority on these issues because the culture wants autonomy. We think we want freedom. We don't. We want autonomy. And they think that the Bible stands against freedom. It's saying, oh, it's anti-freedom. It's saying, don't do this behavior because God finds that icky or yucky. And just don't do it. It's like arbitrary. And as if it, the Bible is anti-freedom. The Bible's not anti-freedom. The Bible is anti-autonomy. Autonomy is the ability to do whatever you want. But true freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want. True freedom is much more than that. In fact, all things have limitations. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean about what true freedom actually is and how it has to have boundaries. I am blessed with a very large backyard behind my house. But that backyard happens to back up to a main road. And there are cars and trucks whizzing by all the time behind my yard. Now, when we moved in, my son was extremely young. And we wanted more kids. So we needed to have boundaries. We needed to set a boundary. Because if we let our son play in the backyard without any boundaries, 
well, then the ball might bounce right into the street. And kids being kids will run after the ball without looking twice, either way, both ways, and they'll get killed. So they would have no freedom to enjoy the purpose of the backyard because they wouldn't have any boundaries. Freedom necessarily requires boundaries. Not too much, just enough. It was Chesterton who said so beautifully, that everything has limitations and boundaries. Otherwise, you're not really free. This is what he says. Listen carefully. He says, art is limitation. The efference of every picture is the frame. If you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If, in your bold, creative way, you think that you are free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will find you're not free to draw a giraffe at all. You may free things from incidental issues, but don't free them from fundamental things that are about them. You may free a tiger from his cage and his bars, but you dare not free a tiger from his stripes. You may free a camel of his humps, only to find out you have freedom from being a camel at all. Everything has limitations, including and especially freedom, but just enough. See, the Bible is anti-human autonomy, but it's not anti-freedom, if you understand what freedom actually is. Freedom isn't just doing what you want. Freedom is the ability to do what you want in accordance with what you should based on what you are. And we've lost all sense of what we are. One of the students at Yale University asked us this question. Can you link to me this whole idea of Jesus and freedom? Because you keep talking about freedom and you're a Christian. How does Jesus actually set us free? Whereas I can see how truth sets us free. How does Jesus set us free? And I was like, I'm so glad you asked. John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Often cited passage. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But I want to show you something that hopefully you didn't see before. And if you did see it before, I want to remind you of it. Here's the conversation. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Did you see it? Truth and freedom are linked. They cannot be separated. You cannot be free without truth, and you must know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Their answer to him is hysterical to me. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Can you be serious? You're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Did you forget the 400 years in Egypt? Did you forget the fact that you're saying that very statement while you're under Roman occupation? Never been enslaved to anyone. You see what happens when you're post-truth? Your preferences matter more than the truth. And they preferred to think of themselves as free, not as actually people who are under bondage. But Jesus, in his inimitable way, answers them firmly yet gently. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The, son, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Did you catch it again? He says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if, you're, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Truth sets you free. The son sets you free. The son is the truth. Now, you can't just say that kind of a thing and let it hang out there. You've got to prove You've got to back that kind of a thing up on the truth. Well, who do you think you are? They asked him that in John chapter 2. What's amazing to me is that Jesus doesn't just leave it there as a matter of opinion, that maybe I'm the truth, and if you like what I say and you think my words are inspiring, well, then you'll believe me. He didn't leave it there. Jesus actually proved that he was right. I did a debate not too long ago. You can catch it on YouTube. 
with, a, with an atheist who's written lots and lots of books on the subjects, and I debated on it with him on whether or not Jesus historically rise, rose from the dead. You can know, not as a matter of hope, but as a matter of hopeful history, actual history, that Jesus actually, as a matter of fact, rose from the dead. And there's great evidence for this. And I debated with this guy about this. And someone asked me during the Q&A, as I'm often asked, why do you trust Jesus more than you trust anybody else, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else, whatever? Why trust Jesus? And here is my foundational answer. Jesus claimed to be the son of God who died to take away the sins of the world, and then he rose again from the dead to prove he was right. Why do I believe Jesus? Because he rose from the dead. And guys who rise from the dead have credibility. Don't believe me, believe him. What does this mean for you and for me? Is that Jesus comes to set us free, not to be autonomous. I want to ask you a question. Have your, has your autonomy, has your elevation of your preferences, if you've done this, over the truth, truly set you free? I mean, we have these, these machines that we laughingly call phones. It's just a, it's a computer that makes calls once in a while. There's more power computing power in this little machine, this little phone that I hold in my hand, than was on the first rockets that went to the moon. And yet, let me ask you this, with all of this power that this machine has to let you see and listen to whatever you want to be totally autonomous, have you been set free by this machine? Do you feel a little twitchy when the battery dies and you can't use it? You can't get back to your friends or you can't get back to somebody. You ever had that thing happen to you where the phone is sitting on the table and somehow you feel it vibrating in your pocket? And tell me we're not addicted to these things? We're tethered. These machines are supposed to give us autonomy, but autonomy has not given us fulfillment. It's actually led to an enslavement. We have started to call these things names. We call them Siri and Alexa and whatever the heck else we call them. And so we personalize objects and we use them to look at horrible things that objectify people. Autonomy does not work, but freedom does. What is this freedom that Jesus gives to us? It is this. It's very important. There's two sources of the hope that Jesus provides when you're free. First is a global hope. It's very important, a global hope. You know, Mark Twain was credited as saying this, history does not repeat, but it does rhyme. And I think he's right about that. When you look across history and you begin to see the hope of the gospel, did you know this, that in the Roman Empire, you were not considered a person just by virtue of being born. You had to earn personhood. In fact, the word person comes from the Latin word persona, which means mask. It's an artificial thing that was given to you by the state. You had to earn personhood. Equality was not a thing they even thought about. It was an illusion to them. They didn't even think about ideas of equality. It was the Christian message that said, everyone is equally sinful before God, but everyone is equally offered redemption before God. That is the great equalizer. Nothing about you except the fact that you're made in God's image is what is equal about us. And that changed the Roman Empire. And then you see Christians not only changed the hearts and minds of the Romans, but when the plague ships were teetering off uh, and listing outside of the docks because no one wanted them to come into the docks for fear of getting plagued themselves, it was Christians who got on their skiffs and on their little boats and went out there and ministered to those who were sick and dying, sometimes getting plagued themselves and dying. But then you fast forward a few hundred years and you see that there was Christians who 
traveled to Ebola-infested West Africa to treat those who were dying, contracting Ebola themselves. History does not repeat, but it sure does rhyme. It's because of the hope of the gospel. So hopeful, by the way, that you get these words from an atheist named Matthew Paris in an article he wrote called Why Africa Needs Christianity. Please listen to these words because they're terribly important coming from someone who's not a Christian. He went back to his homeland of Nyazaland, which is now today Malawi, and he observed the Christians there and the message of the gospel. This is what he said. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Not Christian aid work, Christian evangelism, the message itself of the gospel. And he says this, it is sharply distinct from the work of secular uh, NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings the spiritual transformation. The, the rebirth is real. The change is good. This is an atheist saying this about the power of the Christian message. It brings a global hope, but my friends, it also brings a very personal hope. It's not just global, it's personal for you and for me. We are currently under an identity crisis in this country and in the West. We just don't know who we are anymore, so we start to invent who we might be. We wanna change who we can be at every single moment, it seems. And we have to ask ourselves, who am I? When you ask yourself, what does it mean to be human? It seems like almost an obvious thing, but we can't even answer this question anymore because we're not understood. And that's why we clash and we seem to hate each other so much. We engage in what I call the Hitlerization of social commentary, where if you don't agree with me, you're suddenly Adolf Hitler. You can't even, you can't even be neutral. You have to agree with me in order to not be labeled this. And the reason why is because we're not understanding each other, that we're all going through the same, the same struggles, but we also have the same savior who can save us if we but let him. Reminds me of Thomas Bracken's poem, Not Understood, when he says, not understood, we move along asunder, our paths grow wider as the seasons creep. Along the years, we marvel and we wonder why life is life, and then we fall asleep, not understood. Not understood, how many breasts are aching, how la from lack of sympathy, ah, day by day, how many lonely, cheerless hearts are breaking, how many noble spirits pass away, not understood. Oh God, that men would, draw, would, would, would see a little clearer, or at least judge less harshly when they cannot see. Oh God, that men would draw a little nearer to one another. They'd be nearer thee and understood. The freedom that Christ offers you is not the ability to do what you want, but to realize who you are. And everything after that becomes freeing and liberating. It was Jesus who said, 2,000 years ago, he was the way, the truth, and the life. And 2,000 years later, we've started elevating our personal preferences over the truth. And now we've put our faith in things that are neither personal nor true. Isn't that ironic? That he says that he's the truth himself, and we elevate personal preferences over truth and find nothing, no fulfillment in the personal or the untrue. A Canadian band named Crash Parallel has this wonderful song that highlights, this is a secular band, by the way, highlighting our need, not for stuff or for experiences to give us our sense of purpose and sense of meaning, but for someone to make us alive. Listen to the words of their song, Rain Delays. Sleepless nights and endless days, and mini skirts and serving trays, waking up from rain delays, selling sex for pocket change, and living off the alcohol with no one but a cab to call, lost inside a bathroom stall, this carbon copy, life withdrawal. 
and driving cars we can't afford, making sure we're never bored, living off our own accord between coffee grounds and corner stores, co uh, corner stores. and limousines and cigarettes and chasing dreams with fishing nets and long weekends without regrets. Well, no one here is taking bets. I need someone to believe in, someone to fill the space with grace, someone to look into my eyes and touch my face, someone to make me strong, someone to make me belong, someone to make me alive. We don't need stuff. We don't need experiences. We need someone. And if a secular band understands this, then maybe there's a truth here for you and for me. As if God was telling me I was right. Let me just close with this. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And for 2,000 years, we've sought meaning in things that are neither personal nor true. But I offer you Christ. I offer you Christ, and I want you to offer the world Christ. In a world that elevates preferences and personal feelings over truth, you can offer them Jesus because in Jesus, the truth is a person. I want to ask you, I want to take a bit of a risk. I want to do this with you now. I know in a crowd this size, I already know it and I've encountered some of you already for whom this message is very important because you thought you were free but you were really just autonomous. And in being autonomous, you were really enslaved. So I'm gonna ask you something. If you've been living in a life of confusion and not understanding clarity and thinking that doing what you want is the ability to be free, but realizing that the ability to do what you want in accordance with who you are and what you should, that's true freedom. And you need this freedom that Jesus offers. Whether you've been a Christian for all your life and suddenly realize what it really means or you've never been a Christian before, can I ask you for a response? I'm just going to ask you to do this. Wherever you are right now, and some of you are already standing, so it's going to be a little weird because I'm not going to be able to know if you did it or not. But if you're not standing, would you stand? Would you stand and show me that this is actually something that you need? That this is the, I see them. They're going up. If you, brought, if you came with a person who's standing, there's still time. Stand up. If you need this, I see hands going up. If you're already standing and you need this more, raise your hand. If you need this freedom, I can see it happening. If you're with a person who is standing and who raised their hand, this is the moment of discipleship for you and for me. Keep standing, keep raising your hands. If you are one of these people, it is not for you alone to go through. True freedom comes in community. If you're with somebody who's standing or raising a hand, would you come alongside them and pray? This is the time now for silence and for prayer before we engage in some wonderful worship and some wonderful jubilation over the music we're going to hear. Can I ask you to have that transformation? Those of you who are standing, and if you were and you weren't and you sat down, stand back up. And if you're with them, stand with them. There are prayer rooms over to the sides for people to pray with you if you need that prayer. But we're going to pray for just a moment. Gather around those people. Let's give it a moment of silence and I'll close us out in prayer. Pray for that freedom. Pray for that strength of belief that comes from knowing who you are as a child of God, made in his image, inviolable, for whom he died, and now you have that eternal life. So go ahead and take a minute to pray.
Father, we thank you for those who are standing. Father, we thank you for those who are huddled together, for those who have heard what it means to be truly free, not incidentally free, but inherently free, to know what it really means to be bought by you, by your son who paid so much for us. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to talk about you and to share this truth. Lord, may those who have come to know you and those who have come to know you afresh today, maybe even for the first time today, come to know you in spirit and in truth and in a way that is glorious and deep and lasting, not merely an emotional response, but one that is undergirded by the knowledge of the truth, because that is that knowledge of the truth that sets us free. Lord, for everyone who's needed this and who is now praying and who is glad to be written now in the Lamb's Book of Life forever, I thank you. We rejoice with the angels and true fireworks are going off in the heavenlies right now for those salvations. We thank you, Lord, for being the way, the truth, and the life and for offering that truth to us, though we don't deserve it. We thank you, Lord, that we are redeemed and that we are all equal in your sight as children of God who now have come to know you through your Son, in whose name we pray, and the one we praise, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I hope your foundations were challenged today. I hope the foundation of our truth was challenged today. Listen, we have a good night for you, but most of all, if you responded and you have any questions or if you have anything that your heart's been challenged on, we want to remind you, number one, he's got his new book that just came out, and you want to check that out, you can go to abdumurray.com. You can also head over to the prayer tent if anything's been challenged in your heart or you've got questions. We have people here that want to respond to your questions and, and the things that have been raised inside your heart. Um, good message tonight. Let's put our hands together again for Abdu.